Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. Until very recently, Madhab Sharma was the director of refugee resettlement at Bethany Christian Services in downtown Lancaster. You heard a bit of his story in Waveland, an introduction. Here, he tells some of the rest. There's much more that Madhab asked me not to record. Incidents and experiences that were tremendously painful to recall. They were not part of the story he wished to tell here. A couple of months ago, Madhab had to relocate to Philadelphia. He told me he is deeply saddened to leave his adopted home of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In the next half hour, he explains why. And now, Waveland Chapter 2, Far Away Home. I come from a beautiful country called Bhutan that's sandwiched between Tibet and India. I was a young boy uh, working, studying, you know, like any other youth. I had my dreams. I wanted to become a medical doctor, actually. But uh, the political situation in the country was not going right. And uh, uh, when, on May of 1992, in the middle of the night, we, we were forced to, to leave our home. I still remember untethering our cows, uh, leaving our horses and goats and sheep from their sheds. We carried everything, whatever we could, and then we left for a journey, which actually took 20 years. Um, I became a refugee at a very young age. Being a refugee is hard. Nobody in the first place wants to be a refugee, no matter how hard, how hard your life is or how difficult, how poor your country is. Everyone wants to belong to a nation. Everyone wants to belong to a country, and everyone wants to live in their own home. But to be a refugee was really painful for me because I had my dreams. I wanted to study. I wanted to support my family. So my father, he was about 75 years when he became a refugee. He was already, you know, old, but uh, he still had to work because we became refugees. So life was never a bed of roses. I spent about 20 years in the refugee camps, working hard, skipping meals, uh, going from place to place, looking for opportunities, uh, studying. But I had a very clear vision in life that <clears throat> if you are very positive, if you work very hard, no problem would be permanent. That strong belief that no problem is permanent if you have a positive outlook to life actually made, made me where I am today. Uh, I didn't work for success. I didn't work for anything else, but because I had to survive, there was no other way. So education, wealth, property, happiness, all those things, I think, become secondary when you really face a challenge in life. I think survival alone is the most important thing. And I did everything for survival. But yeah, so I lived there in the refugee camps for 20 years during which time. I pursued my higher education. I completed two master's degrees in sociology and in English and a master of philosophy and later on, I, I worked as a, as a principal of a college in, in, the, in Nepal, um, but I was still a, an outsider. I was still a refugee. I was still keeping my income under the pillow. I didn't have a social security. I didn't have medical insurance. I couldn't own a car. I couldn't buy a house. And besides, my entire refugee, you know, my family, my parents, my, my kith and kins, my entire family was in the refugee camps. I decided to come to the United States Coming to the United States, you know, it was uh, mixed emotion, leaving behind family members, living behind a country where you lived for, for 19 years, the memories, the experiences you garnered. It was kind of home for me, you know, living 
in a place for 19 years, but I had to leave. When I came to the United States, I didn't have uh, much experience with the American system. I just want to give you a small example of what happened. You know, I was resettled in Maryland. When I came to the United States, I was an assistant professor in a university. I was a principal of a college. I came with those qualifications. I'd already worked with Peace Corps volunteers from the United States, volunteer service overseas from Europe. But the third day in my office with, with, with my case manager, my case manager gave me a token to use bus to reach to my home, to, to my apartment. And she reached me to the to the uh, bus station and said, Madhav, stay here, wait for Z8 bus. And <clears throat> I waited there quite for one hour, for two hours, for three hours. Trust me, for four hours, still I did not find that Z8 bus. The reason was I saw Z8 bus because I was educated in the British system and I was, when, when my case manager said Z8, I heard Z as in God, Z8 bus. I was waiting. I saw many Z, Z8 buses come and go. When, when I see refugees today, I see that, okay, I, coming with all those qualifications, had those problems. What about those people who have been in the camps for years who did not have the privilege of attending any school? So when you hear people say, having open borders or allowing streams of refugees in is, you know, dangerous. Having had all this experience, which you've distilled down, but we can extrapolate. Um, what is your response to those that might um, say, keep them out, or we have to make sure that everybody is, um, you know, fit for however they mean that, um, and make sure that they're not uh, potential terrorists. So that is that painful for you to hear? And if so, how do you um, respond? First of all, as a former refugee myself, it totally breaks my heart when I hear that uh, a section of the people, based on their culture, on their religion, or on their ethnicity, cannot come to a particular country. The greatness of the United States of America, the pride and profundity of being an American, lies in the very foundation that we are a nation of immigrants that on our shores many, many hundreds of years ago, people from different countries came as refugees. So to build a wall, to say that you cannot come to the United States, we cannot protect you because you belong to this culture or to this faith, I think this is a very dangerous statement, and I really believe and hope and pray that this, this cannot happen. Because if this happens, I would then envision of a world where all the Chinese would be living in China, all the Japanese would be living and only in Japan. It would completely demarcate the world on a different line. It, it, you know, it takes a redefinition of who a human being is. I think today a global village, the concept of global village, it's, you cannot really divide who is who and who is not. But having said that, national security is absolutely important. I, like any other person living in the United States, feel that we, every individual American should be protected and should live without fear. I want to tell you that refugees entering into the United States are the most vetted visitors, anyone that enters in, into the country. This was your experience? Yes. It takes at least two years you know, to just complete those 
those all the processes like from first round of interview by United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees or UNHCR until the time you know pre-embarkment and all the cultural orientation oh my god you have to be so consistent i don't think anybody who anybody can hide anything you know it's it's just so difficult and i want to tell you that if somebody really wants to harm the united states people can actually go to europe come on a student visa and do that you know it's it's possible there could be somebody someone but can we generalize just because one person has harmed can we generalize the entire people these people who are coming who are trying to come to the united states are people who are victims of terrorism they are they are running away there there is there is persecution in their own country so otherwise nobody wants to be a refugee i think we have to build bridges not walls we have to you know create a dialogue not a divisiveness i think that that would not make us any safer why did you want to come to the united states why the united states at that particular point in your life you went through an unimaginable hardship clearly you needed to leave where you were why did you come here okay so when i was thrown out of bhutan as a young boy because i belonged to nepali culture i did not have you know i looked different from the ruling class in bhutan I didn't have a place to go. I first came to India. India is the largest democracy as America is the oldest democracy. So I was in India for about 2 weeks. I really breathed a sigh of relief that I and my people were safe there. But the Indian security forces they put us in truck and then we were in Nepal. I lived there for 19 years in the refugee camps. Still I was an outsider. I spoke Nepali language. I looked like a Nepali person. I shared the culture but still for political reasons i didn't have a citizenship so i di- i could not belong to that country even living for 19 years my first priority was to go back to bhutan to my birthplace i love my birthplace i love my country but the bhutan government did not want us so the only option the only alternative was accept third country resettlement so where to go this was a big question this again takes me back to my days in 1993 when i was pursuing my school education where i was serving as a house servant and then i heard one of the one of the presidents of the united states speaking uh, a sentence among other things he said our hopes our hearts and our hands are with those on every continent who are building democracy and freedom their cause is america's cause this particular sentence actually was a uh, it brought a change in me because i started questioning trust me even while i was serving as a as a house servant there even at that time i thought i started questioning is my cause also america's cause my people are suffering several of my people were tortured and killed inside bhutan my ancestral property it was confiscated citizenship looted and then we were we were thrown out will america do something i started dreaming that dream and i came to the united states with actually such a happy heart because i someday could thank you know it would be a sense of gratification for me to give back to this nation that has openly welcomed me and given me a home away from home and i want to send this message to the government and the king of bhutan also i'm sure he'll listen to this podcast yes <laughs> that uh, I was not a bad guy. 
simply because I did not belong to his ethnic group, I didn't have to be a refugee. And I want to prove this through my service, through my hard work to this country, to, the, to my new country, to, to, to the United States, that we love our country as much as anybody else. We're going to get to how you're doing that in a second, sure. but I have one last question just about your, just, I guess about your acculturation and acclimation to becoming an American. How did you find that process? Once you were here, the Z8 bus notwithstanding, <laughs> how, did it, how did things go? Um, acculturation, acclimatization, I think, are for any person is actually difficult, no matter even if you know the language. It is not just the physical part of it. You know, you know the language, you can read the signboards, you can understand people. You know your do's and don'ts. I think a more subtle thing is there, which is the emotion, the feeling of belongingness, the attachment, the involvement. These are important things. Initially, it was hard. I must tell you, I must be very candid with you that I lost a couple of my friends because I happened to smile at a wrong time. I laughed at a wrong time, and they took it as an offense, and they were judgmental. I tried to explain to them, I come from a different culture. Let me tell you, take you back to, to my uh, life in Bhutan to, to substantiate that. I was in my school. I was in, the, I think, the eighth grade. And the king of Bhutan was visiting my school. And in Bhutan, the law is you cannot look into anybody's eyes straight if the person is a senior to you, especially if it's a government officer. You cannot look into the eyes. That is offense. That's illegal much less to the eyes of the king, mm. because king is considered the incarnation of God. Mm. So the king, I was a lean and thin, uh, young, small boy, standing in the front line, in the first line in the queue, welcoming the king for the king. I could hear the footsteps, and I could see his legs, his, his beautiful boots. You know, I was so curious to see my king, the face of my king. I just looked up, I raised my head, and then I looked up. And trust me, within seconds, somebody pulls me on my collar from behind. And it was the Zonka teacher. And for my audacity of looking at the king's face, I had to face consequences. For three days, I, was, I had to skip my lunch, and I had to weed the garden. I came with that, with, with that legacy, you know, somewhere deep inside, I had that. And here today, when I speak and when I do not look into your eyes... When refugees go for an interview, you know, and when they do not look into the eyes of the interviewer, we have two things to say. Either the person is hiding something or you are not confident. Mm -hmm. So that is where, you know, I think a culture clash lies and it takes time. And like for any other immigrant, it took time for me also. But I'm a new, I'm, I'm a fast learner. I didn't hesitate to ask questions, but I did have the ups and downs um, in my acculturation. But today... I want to share with you very happily that uh, I know the American culture, I like the American system, and uh, so I'm enjoying. Every day, indeed, is a learning process, though. What is something about American culture that you really appreciate? I think people here in the American culture, they do not bother you, no matter what you wear, what you eat, how you look, how you dress. They won't ask you anything as long as you say that you have something. You know, which is so very unlikely in our in our culture back home. There, you know, people would start asking you where you're from and all those questions. What did you eat? How many cows you have? Or how much wealth? What is your education? 
they want to know it's a kind of big interview mm-hmm. and at times it's painful for example especially if you did not have the privilege to attend school and all so it's hard you know but here in the united states i feel i think there's a lot of freedom people come into you ask you only when you want them to this actually teaches people to be independent also refugees who come with a lot of dependency syndrome can actually be so open and then they start working and become self-reliant this is i think a wonderful culture that i love in americans well it's it's certain that you have embraced that piece of it and sort of implemented it in your own life because here you are now right um and okay so tell us where we are right because and and what your role is here so currently i am the director for refugee resettlement for bethany christian services i serve about 200 refugees coming from different countries and cultures these are people who have suffered life's oddities the hard way there are children men women who have undergone so much of difficulties in life every refugee that i meet you know as as they walk into my in, in on the hallway into my office i look into their eyes and i see that their story i see my story in theirs and their stories in mine and they all have a common purpose they want to they want to work hard they want to belong to this country they want to give back to this country and they want their children to succeed every refugee that i meet at the airport every refugee that that comes across they all have a hope hope amid despair possibilities amid predicaments you know that i think is the beauty i don't see anybody frustrated even in that you know they are hungry they are tired they have nothing they just carry with a, with with they, they come with uh, some 40 pounds when a refugee smiles trust me it needs courage it truly needs courage it's very difficult to smile to laugh you have to conceal so much of hardship in order for you to 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 force a smile on your face what is the process from sort of start to maybe not finish but you know to a point where you feel that they are becoming independent what do you do okay. for them and how does that work so what happens is while the refugee while these people are in the refugee camps the vetting processes start one after another there is different layers and layers of monitoring checking examinations cross examinations before a refugee can actually embark into the plane when they are in the flight so i receive a, a you know biodata of the clients saying that um, whether lancaster can can host these people so i usually see three things the first whether their health condition whether we have sufficient health resources here second i see whether there is language capacity and the third i see whether we have housing so based on those three things i say yes or no for a particular client to come to lancaster to make lancaster their home so you can just imagine based on those three things a person is deciding where he wants to live and that would change the entire face of his life so when a person comes to the airport we go there we provide an uh, you know a language speaker if i can i speak five languages so it's good that you know i'm in in this field so where are they i speak nepali my mother tongue i speak english of course i speak hindi i speak bangla and i speak one of the uh, south indian languages kannada so i speak these five languages and uh, oh yes i speak zonka also the language of bhutan actually i'm one of the few people that speaks zonka i mean from the refugee community because i i studied that as a, as a, almost as a first language in bhutan so and you know that these are people who have been in the refugee camps 
they don't lock their doors, there is no AC, there is no water, you know, there is no toilet, at least the kind of toilet that we have here in the United States. So it's, you have to walk them through everything. So we guide them, that's called the cultural orientation. We provide a culturally appropriate meal for them. And uh, the first 90 days, we provide them all services very actively. We help them with cultural orientation, with the use of public transport, social security. So when refugees come, they come with a legal document called an I-94. It's like a passport. The I-94 is the legal document that allows them to be here indefinitely. So it doesn't have an expiry date. Within one year, refugees become a permanent resident. And after five years, if they fully comply with the law, if they learn English, pass the 100 civics questions, civics tests, the ESL and others, then they sit for an examination, they qualify that, and they become naturalized American citizens. So our journey of supporting refugees comes from the airport until the time they become citizens. However, our active service is only for the first 90 days, which most for most refugees is overwhelming. Can you imagine somebody comes from the refugee camp and then within 90 days they are just left? It's, it's going to be a big challenge, but I think only because they are challenged, they have become so successful. And I am a living example of how refugees can be successful I was a refugee. I was, I was provided all these services, and just in five years, I'm able to give back to the community. What is the thing that they, the refugee community, specifically, let's say, in Lancaster right now, needs most? What are they not getting, or what are they getting not enough of, or what obstacles are they facing right now which, they, which you think they need help with? Yeah, that's, I think, a great question, Sam. Um, before I answer that question, however, I want to, I want to tell you a, a, a a bigger issue. So when we are talking of resettlement, we talk of two important concepts. One is relocation and the other is resettlement. I say relocation is just the shift of the venue from a refugee camp to a country that accepts them, say Lancaster or to the United States, and in our case, Lancaster City. However, our, our objective is not relocation only. It is resettlement. By resettlement, I mean, I think there is emotion involved. People have to feel a sense of belongingness to the place. It takes time because people come with a culture, come with an experience, with a life, you know, with a story of their own. And completely in a new culture, it's difficult, so it takes time. Some of the challenges that I see, the biggest challenge that I see is the, the language. Most refugees... Do not have the, did not have the privilege to attend school in their own language, much less English. So when they come here, they cannot speak English, they cannot communicate. So they have to either rely on their younger children because they went to school and they, they can communicate, or they have to rely on a, an interpreter, which is difficult. So language is the biggest barrier. So the local community, if they could be involved in teaching ESL, adult ESL, some kind of involvement to these people, in parks, in public places, you know, accepting them as they are, you know, accepting whoever they are, whatever language they speak, and involving them together, engaging them in our community activities, I think goes a long way toward helping uh, in the process of integration. 
The other thing that I feel is um, important is, you know, refugees do not come with any belongings. As I shared with you before, you are allowed to carry two bags, each 40 pounds, 25 kgs. That was what I was allowed to carry. And uh, you don't have, like, winter comes, we don't, they don't have winter clothes. So it's so helpful. So one-time volunteer service, one-time support, say, a blanket or a sheet or anything, you know, a piece of furniture will be helpful. But more importantly, over time, refugees go back to work. Our program supports refugees to, to uh, employ them. Within the first 90 days, we, we have to employ them to any decent job. So even helping them finding job, you must, I must tell you that refugees are sincere, hardworking people because they come here just to rebuild their life, to belong to a country, to get a sense of economic stability and to make sure that their children go to school and are stable. Providing them the first job, laying trust on them that although they don't have a work history. When I came to the United States, I had huge experience working, but I didn't have any work history in the United States. Thanks to Baltimore City Community College, if, if BCCC had not laid trust on me that my experience teaching abroad, then I would be working somewhere in, in groceries or I would be working for Dart Company or somewhere today. But because they trusted me, I was given the Star Teacher Award at the end of the year. I did a great job because I, I studied English as a second language later and first as a foreign language. And I knew where non-native speakers have that problem, you know, when they're learning English as a foreign language. I knew exactly what, where to hit. And most of my students were immigrants from different countries. So the local community has a, has a lot to give besides language and other, you know, involving them and all. I think it's friendship. That's what I say. Other things, you know, a piece of furniture or a, or a sheet or a blanket, over time these refugees can buy. But... A true friendship, a non-judgmental friendship is something that local, these, these people would really want because, you know, refugees have a way of, a style of talking. They may not talk in the American style. When you ask, who are you, they may say tense sentences. They may ask, say a lot of things because they want to share things out there. That is how they feel happy. And they need friends. And I, I must tell you with pride and happiness that Lancaster is one of the, although very small, very vibrant an extremely welcoming city. You know, Lancaster is so close to my heart, partly because it, it reminds me of my home. I see horses at the backyard. I see cows. You know, that was where I belonged. I came from there, and I see huge farms, and I love this city. Put a candle in the window Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. I think Waveland needs a few more chapters before it's complete. I'd love to hear your ideas on how to proceed. Send me a message at samschindler.com or on the What We Will Abide Facebook page or just drop me a line to tell me what you think of the show. As always, giving the show a rating and a review on iTunes is tremendously helpful. Thanks again to Ari Gold, who continues to provide great music for this series, and again to Russell Foltz-Smith for his wild portrait art. More to come. Long as I I guess I got that old traveling bone Cause this feeling won't leave
to worry, no, no, no. As long as I see the light, as long as I can see the light, I guess I got that old traveling bone. Oh, oh, oh.